In the genre of horror literature, most plots revolve around the protagonist contending with a threat that is trying to kill them. In Thomas Ligotti's works, however, the threat is not necessarily an external one, but that of existence itself. In his characteristically pessimistic way, Ligotti's view is that with suffering outweighing the joys of life, one must seriously consider the point of continuing life at all. In the special Halloween After Dark episode, we are joined by Titus to explore the depths of malignant uselessness after a brief review of the recent re-release of the Frank Herbert classic, Dune. I did not trade arms for After Dark Special. Uh, we have returning from last year from the Abyss, Titus. How's it going, Hello. Titus? Yeah, good to be back, fellas. Good to talk to you again. Time for the uh, spooky season. Happy Halloween, everyone. And everyone. <laughs> <here> <laughs> We have a full have haunted house of characters. Adam, what are you going to be for Halloween? Uh, what day is it? <laughs> is it on the weekend? <laughs> Sunday, man. Oh, weekend Halloween is always lit. Yes, yeah, Sunday. I'll be uh, I'll be working if possible. <clears throat> no surprise there. I did buy some candy Seriously. though, so I'll put it in a bucket and. Uh, I did that last year and nobody came, so I think what I'll do is um, I'll put what like kind, a well, what kind I'll put like a paper, uh, what is it, a pumpkin? Is that what you need to do? I think I'll put a pumpkin on a piece of paper and then I'll say uh, trick or treat, and we'll see if I get any takers. You need to do the reverse trick or treating, where you take your candy bucket and you go around for like to other people's houses in your neighborhood <laughs> and you're like nah, it's, it's the other way around this year <laughs> everything's fucked up here's your candy <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Titus what are you going to be for Halloween I'm going to be a Sadukar Mongolian throat singer for Halloween I've been working on it all week and uh, I think I'm starting to uh, get a handle on the tones and pitches of it. So, just throat singing in the office on the Zoom calls. <laughs> this is you're referencing the Canadian the Canadian Dune film. Is that what that's, that's a reference to? That was my All segue. Yeah, I hope I hope that's okay. <laughs> it's the Canadian Dune. Hey, <laughs> it's been a while since I've done a podcast. <laughs> it's we might as well talk about it. Um, not especially spooky, um, but uh, I saw it. Uh, I know 
Titus saw it. Hank saw it. Hans, did you see it too? I know Adam did, of course, but uh, you you saw it too? Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, what did you think, Hans? It, um, It wasn't very good. It wasn't terrible. Ooh, wrong. Okay. But uh, it it uh, it could have been better, but it wasn't terrible. Uh, I thought it was going to be um, awful. Just kind of judging by some of what I had seen prior to it, uh, I I am of the opinion that it is not possible to make a good movie out of uh, out of Dune or any of Frank Herbert's work. I just don't think it's doable. Big disagree. Uh. But it worked in some in some senses. It worked on a visual level, although I think Nick hated the visuals. Uh, I think that the, uh, the the main actor, the uh, the very uh, brooding uh, teenager uh, who played Paul, did a great job. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people have said that uh, that the the standout was uh, Duncan Idaho. Uh, and I would have to agree. He uh, he added a little bit of levity to the film, which was very, very bleak. Uh, I do not re- remember Dune, the novel, being nearly that bleak as uh, as the film. But it, it it had some successes. And I think that uh, obviously there were some great there were some great elements. There were like great scenes that felt like they were out of a different film, like uh, the Sadakar scene on uh What's the planet the Sadakar are on? I can't remember. Seleucus Secundus. There you go. Uh, Seleucus Secundus. Seleucus Secundus. And um, that was fantastic. Every scene with the Sadakar was was very, very well done. That could have easily been cheesy or like yeah. or like weird, uh, like John Wick style action sequences. <laughs> but but it was it was effective. It was uh, it was nice and brutal. Um, but I think that the film could have done better had it been um, uh, allowed to be rated R. I don't know if it, it was originally shot that way. I think that part of what made uh, that Blade Runner film that that director made very good was that it was brutal, it was bloody, and you know it could be a little bit more mature. Um, and I think that it there's a little there was a lack of violence when they needed violence. Uh, that did not fully express the the brutality. I think that you kind of need to go for. Um, so that's surprising it, that like they bother with. I sort of assumed that it was R rated going into it. Just yeah, same. Yeah, but, I, I, I was kind of shocked. Like, why would they bother? Honestly, I don't. I don't think that that really explains because why in the current year would you bother? You know, oh, teens are gonna be able to watch this movie in theaters now. It's like, no, teens aren't going to the theaters. Like, what are you talking about? Like, some people are doing Netflix or uh, not Netflix, IMAX, but that's like a you know, thirty-five-year-old boomer thing. It's not a like teens want the best sim- cinematic experience possible, and they're gonna be locked out if we go hard R. I think it was definitely a uh, studio decision to sort of ape the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I'm assuming 
part two is going to be coming out. And I don't know. I don't know, like, the, the how far they want to go in the series of novels. Um, I hope not far because I didn't like this movie. Um, but, yeah, we'll we'll see. I don't I don't know. It's. Um, I as far as I as far as I see it, um the 1984 David Lynch Dune, and yes, I'm a David Lynch fanboy, uh, and yes, he hates that movie, and yes, the studio butchered it, um, despite all of those things, despite the 84 version being pretty flawed and having some uh, digressions from the source material, I think it's an infinitely better film. Um, yeah, I really disagree. Like, mm. I... So, I agree with Titus. I think like I'm closer to Hans's opinion actually than uh, the uh, the Nick and Titus uh, faction here. <laughs> but uh, like honestly, I think it's about the best that you can do if you try to take that source material, which is so thematically. Uh, rich and has all these different strains of thought going through it, which is the reason that it became popular because it's not quite a, uh, you know, Rorschach uh, work, but, you know, you can look at the political, the ecological, the, the racial, the spiritual, the like crazy sex, drugs, adventure angles. Like there's all these different ways that you can explore there's all these different like nuggets that you can fixate on mm-hmm. and if you try to translate that into a film it's very disjointed and confusing and so any adaptation decides kind of what they're going to uh focus on thematically because you even if you're splitting it into uh two parts which it looks like the uh, the sequel was a greenlit so we probably will get a uh a to the end of the the actual dune uh book but you only have two and a half hours and you can like add up the amount of time that you spend reading like 450 page novel or whatever mm-hmm. it's not small and as a result, you really, really, really have to uh, concentrate. And the obvious things that you want to get right are the aesthetics, because it is like a, uh, you know, a creative work where people want to be absorbed into the world. And I think that the film definitely succeeded on that basis. And really what it seemed to me like they were doing was focusing much more on the uh, political and ecological uh, strains of thought in Dune, not to the exclusion of, but definitely in priority to the uh, the kind of hero's journey stuff uh, and the, uh, the kind of... Uh, racial or like uh, plotty like we're gonna breed a quizos hatterach stuff so i mean i i enjoyed it i thought it was completely enjoyable yeah, that... and uh you know uh i i don't think that i would have changed too much except for like the couple of obvious bits of uh you know 
uh, casting that everybody uh, sort of agrees was wildly suboptimal. The the, the Kinds casting is is so, bad. Is really bad. Let me just say, it's bad. It, yeah. It's not just not just because it's like an it's unnecessary ins- weird gender and race bend. That actress could have done. It's it's like actually. You don't, like, like, like it's, uh, who's uh, like David Bowie's wife, like the the seven foot tall like Ethiopian model, like that's a mon. Like, for the for the character of Leitkinds, it's like I've been on this desert planet for twenty years, like I've gone completely native. I'm borderline insane. I've got a giant plot where we're storing water underground for the day when we finally achieve political ascendancy and we can terraform the entire planet. Like, that's borderline crazy, man. He's he's basically the John the Baptist to yeah. the Fremen. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't show them the way, but he paves the way, and he's like, okay, here's what's going to go down. You got to be ready. And in order to do that, you need a John the Baptist figure. You need, like, somebody super weird who's, like, borderline insane dressing in bear skins or the the local equivalents and uh you don't you don't get that with just like you know 25 year old dreadlock chick there's plenty of like good weird black actors out there if it's like we need our quota here but it's difficult too if you need them to be not so, just signifying that, but like a narrative focus of the film, which is you know they decided in this telling to make the character of Kynes uh, a, a like a narrative focus, like a viewpoint character for a large portion of the film. My problems with the film are just it. I agree, Hank, that you can, you gotta just, you gotta pick your battles when it comes to, because Dune is so rich. So many themes, you gotta kind of, you gotta decide what's important. And I just didn't think that the right details were focused on. And what makes it especially irritating to me when I was watching it was how much fucking time is wasted on these long shots of people walking and this you know empty architecture i didn't for a movie as long as it is i just i did not think it used its time well i don't think that's when you chill in your netflix and chilling (laughs) i just i hope that in post we can enhance that sigh that i just heard from I don't. I don't think Nick has a computer. I think he. Uh, I, I he just uses a, a reel-to-reel and a projector. <laughs> the the, the most important character in Dune, I thought, was was very underdeveloped, and that that's of course Arrakis, the desert planet. Yeah. It I just very empty. I, and stri- I didn't feel that it was. It, it doesn't. It it's the central character, and it didn't. It it just wasn't given its due. It didn't feel. It just felt like some desert rather than this, like planet on the hinterlands that also happens to be the the most important place in the entire cosmos. Uh, just the whole the things that were important did not find to be focused on, and then there was just un, like casually 
disregarding important details. For example, there's a scene where Mapes uh, gives the shows the Chris knife to Jessica, and there's like this guard, this woman guard, right next to her, and she sees it, and no mention is given of the fact that. The Chris knife has never been seen by an outworlder and had them live. You know, it was, it was just downplayed. It's just like, oh, this is a knife of our people, you know. And it, it just felt like fucking dances with wolves shit. Uh, it didn't feel like Dune. Yeah, I I enjoyed some of the his. I enjoyed kind of seeing how he would treat the different technology and you know, I I, I don't really very like well that handled. much, but it is it is engaging. Yeah, the shields yeah, yeah. and the I, I, the combat I thought I was, was exceedingly well handled. Well, and then there was just stuff to okay, okay, so it it felt like it was dumbed down in a way that was very contradictory because it's this slow movie that really kind of at times it expects you to be familiar with Dune and at other times it it doesn't, and it's just. It's already going to be something alienating to the mass audience. Yeah, I mean, I can't be objective with how much it's actually conveyed via the plot, I guess, because I have a tendency to kind of fill in the blanks there. Mm -hmm. And then they talk like they have like the Atreides, the House Atreides are are like Pokemon and so are the Sardaukar, like in the big, when they, uh, when they, when they invade. The, uh, when House Harkonnen and the Sardaukar invade, uh, they they like they're fighting on the stairs, and they like say their they like they say their name like yeah, the Atreides, yeah. and then the the Sardaukar like deploy behind them, and they're like Sardaukar, <laughs> like the Sardaukar <laughs> themselves say that. It's just I just thought it was like just kind of dumb, and I also didn't like the action choreography. Uh, I thought it was I got what they were going for where. It's supposed to be a little bit slow because, you know, must slow blade. But it just, it was, like, also, if I didn't know anything about Dune, I just think it would be, it would be very strange to me that they're, like, dropping basically nukes. And then, like, everyone's just running at each other with swords. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I made this comment it, elsewhere. If, if you're not familiar with the story of at least the first Dune, and... um you're not familiar with the backstory. You're not familiar with, you know, even in the first, not even in the first novel. Early on, they start establishing lots of the political background and the history, and it's it's made very clear why the characters we are following are doing certain things. Like there's a real logic to it. A lot of them are trapped in this logic. They have to go through with a lot of these actions. In the film, none of that's really explored. It's explored at a surface level. In the logic of the film, uh, House Atreides come across as like borderline retarded. Like yeah. they, they, they got themselves into this trap, knowing it was a trap, thought they could wiggle out of it, and then got completely blown out. Like you know, there's no in in Dune that certainly in the novel that is an element, and that that element has obvious philosophical, ethical implications, pride, and so forth, but. There's also a real political logic and there's a story of why House of Trades is in that position and why they're 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 gambling with fate. They're tempting I, fate. I think by that's conveyed in the film, honestly. It's, it's that's, really not. It's really not. It's conveyed. Like they don't like spend a minutes. huge amount of time on it, but they do uh, like 
there's always a question when you're kind of getting into um, political stuff with like how much of it you can just sort of establish it and then it's established versus how much time do you need to spend so that people really understand uh, not just like the the plot points that oh like because they they established like these four plot points that Atreides they're they're very they're popular people because they're pro, they're protagonists you just wave your hands and you say okay well everybody likes these guys so the emperor wants to bring them down a notch by putting them in charge of this thing and then fucking them over. And they want to take the job because they're popular. They know they're popular and they want to increase their standing by like taking on the most important job in the universe. So, I mean, like all of that is, is laid out, but in order to really kind of understand it on an intuitive basis, you need to have a little bit of understanding of, well, somebody might put somebody in charge of something in order to fuck them over. And somebody might anticipate being fucked over, but like think that they have enough time to prepare. Like again, your, your brain kind of needs to fill in some of these gaps and without turning it into a house of cards in space or whatever, uh, you can't really spend too much time on it because talking yeah, is you, boring and like riding sandworms. Sauce. You can do things. I, I will say overall, I think that it the film did lack enough exposition because that's part of it's part of what makes the world compelling. That more expedi- exposition would have been good, but when it comes to the political intrigues and conspiracies and plans within plans, yeah, you can accomplish that in an atmospheric way you can you can do you don't need to have everything spelled out you can just you can accomplish it by an overwhelming atmosphere of paranoia you know like for example in the story uh, they have like those those machines like one of the most sophisticated machines they they have in dune is like to test for poison you know like some things like that could be included just to give the impression that people are being manipulated by because that's, that's what the story of Dune is. It's there's a story really, of there's people a really, being. Oh, so, sorry, Nick. No, there's there's. I just want to uh, because there's there's a really short scene in Lynch's Dune where they arrive on planet and it's before the hunter seeker scene, and they mention like we've you know uh, uncovered like. 37 bombs uh, that the Harkonnens left us. And like, they're, they're sort of like in, I think like they're in like the shield generator room and there there's, there's noise and, and sort of sparks, you know, flying out. And it's a really just sort of, it's a very small scene, but it adds like an expectation that, Oh shit, like something bad is going to happen. And it, and it sort of adds to the, um, the anticipation of it. Um, and that's that's it's just like little things like that where I think they absolutely they, they could have done a better try job. to do that. But I think that they they realized that the uh, the actress, the Kynes character, because there's this whole sub point. They spent probably about five minutes, which is a lot in a film mm. uh, about like, oh, well, everything is everything was fucked when we got here. Mm. And they phrase it in economic terms yeah. that all this equipment is broken down and sabotaged. Hey, why isn't the imperial ecologist 
calling bullshit essentially on yeah. this uh, this whole process because like it's not going to be our fault that we can't get things running here. It's very like middle management, which is maybe, yes. maybe why it spoke to me. <laughs> uh, but I, they. They just have like a throwaway uh, line that like I I don't really care about all that space stuff uh, like by the uh, you know this this imperial ecologist they could have gone like so many different ways with that it's like oh yeah well she's she's fucking crazy she doesn't care about your your power politics all she cares about is like you know various fremen factions and. Uh, you know the the sandworm migration patterns and whatever and now we realize we're fucked because nobody is gonna like nobody is going to call bullshit on this endeavor like there could have been a very tragic uh undertone with it but instead it's like a haha now my inevitable betrayal begins uh type vibe you know like i'm not saying it's a perfect movie but i appreciated it for a lot of the things it was trying to do Do you guys what think? did you guys think of Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron Harkonnen? Well, let me let me ask first. Do you guys think it would work better uh, as a series of sorts? If you could, if you had a, a very large, but I mean, this is sort of Game of Thrones money. More, if you yeah. had like you know blank check, not yeah blank check, and you didn't have some of these more perfidious elements getting involved would it work better as a series whether it's it, it amounts to 10 hours or seven hours you know we're able to i, I don't think so well we're, we're going to be able to see because they're doing a girl boss i, I do Benny like with, Gesserit, with a lunatic uh, TV uh, mexican jew auteur jodorowsky was gonna adapt it he wanted it to be like i think nine hours or something <laughs> I mean, he he didn't want to do the project, so he sabotaged it. Yeah, that's what ended but, up happening there. But he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm you crazy! Know, I, I you gave me all this money. I've got all these big ideas. Uh, oh shit! Like, wait, I actually have to direct a movie and not just like play with the like the disabled dwarves that I can scoop up in this zip code, uh, like I do for every other movie, like uh, <laughs> Salvador Dali uh, riding a tiger. That's key to the project. No, I mean, we, we had a counterfactual. We have the, the sci-fi channel miniseries, which I think is like, it's okay. It's, uh, you know, a very low okay. budget. William production. Hurt's really good as, uh, as the Duke. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some standout moments there, but it's like you you don't make a artistic project like this better by just adding more stuff. There's some things where it's like, OK, there's a, a director's cut or something out there that's, you know, das boot to length and uh, it, you can butcher it by cutting it down by 50 percent. But I don't think that you improve things by like adding stuff it would be like if you wanted to tell a different story and that just consumed more time but I, like mini series are actually pretty bad for like grand thematic uh plot sweeps 
because you end up having too much time because now you've gone from two and a half hours to like 10 hours and like they're keeping somebody's attention over that span is impossible and you need to have certain beats within each segment in order to keep people engaged so you end up doing digressions um for every like bit within there you you end up with like this a story b story uh structure where like yeah you can have a bigger overall a story but you've got all this other bullshit mixed in there so now you're basically doing like an anime and you know episode three is like oh i have to learn how to ride the sandworm i wonder if i'm going to be able to self-overcome in order to do this it's it's not it's not i would absolutely it doesn't lead to very epic stories now i'm just now i can't get the image out of my head of a fan service episode of uh, the dune anime Oh, it'd be so great. I mean, they really should, just because it would be so weird. And I just, I want there to be more weirdness in the world. <laughs> to answer your earlier question, Nick, about uh, the Baron actually, Arkham, that's a that's a good segue. Well, to oh, answer yeah, earlier, we can talk about that. Yeah, I mean, to answer your earlier question, uh, it's hard to have an opinion on him because he was in the film for a combined five minutes. Three, yeah, three minutes. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so the pro- he's visually problem, distinctive, though. Okay, he's visually distinctive. Visually, it fits. Like, the, okay, that is right out of the book. That is the Baron Harkonnen. Um, part of the problem with how Except it's he's done, not raping little boys. Yeah, the, that that visual storytelling cue was left out of the. He's also like not like scheming either. Like I, yes, I always, so that, that's I always, what I was gonna say. That yeah. was what I was gonna say. So earlier on in the film, they have um, the training scene with Gunny Halleck and uh, uh, Josh Brolin severely overacts, and he gets right in yeah. the, uh, the the kid's face, and he's like, "I've met Harkonnens. They're brutal," and. <laughs> I thought when I saw it, I'm like, wow, they're setting a tone. Like there's gonna be there's gonna be some shit in the next in the next act. And uh nope. <laughs> Just like the Harkonnens do very little in the movie. They the most brutal thing that the Baron Harkonnen pulls off is an ambush. Yeah. Uh, which is not that brutal. And they leave out the scheming. You're right, Nick. So this guy who you are kind of, it's implied this guy is, he's clearly, you know, he's powerful, he's intelligent, he's a, he's disgusting, he's just, he's just, he's the devil. Uh, you don't see him do anything to warrant that. You know, so you don't really understand how this guy got where he is. Uh, you know, the Sadakar are like the only brutal and people in the plenty film. plenty of things you could have included. Yeah. So you, you could have had this, one of yeah, these like a thirty second one off. He has a pair of slaves fighting in front of him. Yeah, like you have an Atreides, an Atreides slave captive that is. I mean, that's what happens in the in the story in the books. And honestly, have, like the Spade Ralpha who fights one, but who is also absent from the film. Yeah, and instead you just have uh, uh, the wrestler in whiteface. The the Bond. big problem. The big problem for. Harkonnen for for me for uh, Skarsgård's portrayal of him um, was actually like his voice. I, I 
like in the novel, and I, I think like out of all the sort of adaptations, I think Ian McNeese's portrayal uh, in the sci-fi miniseries is probably the best because it, like he isn't, like he's physically monstrous and like devilish um, minded, but he's incredibly like eloquent and a real smooth talker. And he doesn't, he doesn't have a, just a, 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 a grovelly, uh, a bad guy voice. Like he doesn't have a bad guy voice. Right. He's he's a silver tongued uh, serpent, just a bloated one. So I it, it's that that was a, a real big letdown because Skarsgård is an amazing actor and I think he just did a, a pretty poor job of it. I think that was probably the director. What, what was the, who, what was that mud bath? What was going on there? <laughs> oil <laughs> metaphor. It's, it's an oil there. metaphor. It's yeah. about oil. Yeah. They're also doing a shout out to uh Yeah, Lynch. Well, no, they're they're doing a, a shout out to the uh Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. Uh uh fuck, what's his name? Well yeah, Steve I Kirk. couldn't stop thinking. I mean he he's he's doing he's even doing the like the head rub of Marlon Brando. Like it's yeah. the same fucking like which is odd it's, because it's a little, thought, it's a little too thought, on the nose. Any any allusions to to the Marlon Brando character from Apocalypse Now would have been done for kinds like that kind of like yes. weird ticks and he's like yeah. he's gross, he's grimy, he's yeah. he doesn't care what people see of him. He, you know, you would have thought like a really rough and tumble dude that's just broken down, cynical, but but he has you know just doesn't care anymore. It doesn't make sense. For Baron well, Arkin to reads, be like the director at some point, he was like, "Okay, I need an antagonist. I have two antagonists, and they basically both have to be there in some form for plot purposes, so that it's like an adaptation and not like a complete <laughs> retelling." I have to pick one though, because the speech is two and a half hours long, and like simplify 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 is always what you're going to do if you're trying to boil down the story so that you have enough time to like do the stuff that you actually want to so the harkonnens are basically like you know in this in this grand feudal power scheme where you've got a powerful centralizing absolute monarch you've got some like bullshit allies that help to do the dirty work. And this is one of them, and he's visually distincting, distinctive, and my job here is done. Like, you don't, you don't, they're not a, a player character per se, because I'm guessing that the intention, because one of the interesting things was the, the ways that I think that actually the script Im improved on the book in two ways. Uh, there was a immediate suggestion by Paul that, like, well, one way out of this pickle would be I just marry the emperor's daughter, uh, which is good. It it demonstrates that, like, okay, he has a level of political acumen, and it foreshadows this thing. Yeah. Uh, it's not foreshadowed in the book. It kind of, um, I, I want to say that it's actually the uh, the emperor's idea. Um, in the end, I, I might have that wrong, but it's like introduced in the last part of the novel that like, well, essentially you could just buy me out or I could buy you out depending on how you look at it. 
And there's another point where uh, it's implied that, like, the reason that Paul's visions are becoming increasingly prophetic is because, like, he's going out into the deep desert and he's getting his first exposure to just ambient spice levels. And it's basically opening up his third eye. As opposed to, like, you know, it's difficult to convey in film, like, well, the mythic undercurrents of my hero's journey are inexorably propelling me into a future I can feel but not see. Like, it, they're not going to make can't really do that. <laughs> yeah. In a film like that my, comes out in yeah. Well, what Lynch did exactly. was he used yeah. Lynch did the inner monologue. Yes. Right. Which is always lazy. Like, I mean, sometimes you need to do it because, like, that's how you convey like complicated explanations for things. You know what? I'm actually not entirely sure that was Lynch's um, idea because it's a the '84 Dune is a Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, production and he did the same thing because he produced um waterloo which i saw recently and it has the same thing it has the same sort of like voiceovers and stuff so i I actually wonder how much of that was the studio saying hey you need this to happen i'm not sure though dune desert planet hey so um how many tomatoes would you guys give this movie because I have the Rotten Tomatoes. In front I don't know of what the tomato scale is. I would say it's fresh. <laughs> <laughs> watch it. Like if it at all appeals to you. I would say as it, just, as a science it. fiction movie to come out of the studio system. Uh, yeah, like three out of three out of five. Uh, as a Dune adaptation, like uh, one out of five. Yeah, two out of four for me. It's it's it's. Uh, a mediocre film, um, and that's that's speaking as a as a Dune fan. So, uh, it's not a bad film. So I'm I don't know. I maybe two out of four, and like Titus, uh, uh, I do worry <laughs> uh, if this if the intention here is to turn this like as Titus suggested into a uh, pantomime of. Uh, you know, like cinematic universe style filmmaking. Uh, how bad are the sequels going to be? And how oh, well, much I, uh, how much will they botch I, the material of the sequels? Because that has much more room for them to not only botch it, but do something maybe kind of pernicious with the material. Well, I mentioned it earlier uh, a few a few moments ago. They can go ahead. Doing, I don't really like. They're this doing a, a prequel of the Benny Gesserit, and it's going to be like girl boss action, uh, strong independent women. It's it's gonna oh, it's gonna suck. Yeah, it's gonna suck. <laughs> Not gonna uh, be good. We don't get we don't get good things. Why do you need a story just about the Benny Gesserit? Like they're how awful it's, is it's Star Wars right syndrome. It's like, remember that yeah. guy? Yeah. Didn't he look cool? I bet you wonder where did he come from? How did he get that jacket? Yep. That's awful. How dreary and miserable is that? Is that series or film going to be just about the bend? Like, like cryptic, uh, uh women with sorcery and, <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, they, I kind of hope that they they do such a bad job that it ends up being like, well, this is like you can go uh, sort of um, uh, like one level of esotericism deeper. And it's like, well, this is the bullshit story that they tell to themselves. But like, if you look at what's actually happening on the screen, wow, these people are horrible. Sometimes it's fun to do that. Like the uh, well, my headcanon for Star Trek that like everybody just got really retarded in the uh, the like genetic engineering experiments of the early 21st century, and now they're like super high trust, super high openness, and they just like wander around from planet to planet, like getting their asses handed to them. Okay, this this is a huge digression. Didn't we have? <laughs> Well, then we have like an actual of, like uh, horror, miserable, esoteric, and cryptic. Uh, yeah, let's let's get into it. So we talked last Halloween about H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, this Halloween I thought we would talk about a writer who's actually alive. Um, maybe doesn't have quite the relevance to our normal content as as Lovecraft does, but. Uh, I've been enjoy- I've been reading Thomas Ligotti lately, and I thought we could talk about him because I think he's an absolutely fantastic writer. And I know that Hank is a fan, and as well as Titus. So yeah, huge fan. So, why didn't you guys uh, say how it is you uh, got interested in in his work? Uh, I I well, wanted to. Oh yeah, no, go Hank, go redhead. Sorry. Well, I, the, the short answer is uh, Xeno Systems. Uh, the uh, NRX was sort of had like a horror moment, uh, specifically, specifically Nick Land um, was uh, very, I think probably still is very into Ligotti and uh, introduced that to my sort of consciousness. Uh, so I started reading and uh actually listening more because he's a very auditory uh, writer. Uh, and I was uh, very uh, sort of hypnotized by the whole, uh, by his, uh, his aesthetic. I think it's a great, uh, he's a great writer. It's uh, very, very enjoyable. I, I would say that he's probably the best successor to Lovecraft. Um, I, I heard about him, um, actually, uh, thanks to the first season of True Detective, which he's probably, for those who are listening and who haven't read any of his stuff, that's that's probably the one sort of piece of medium, uh, of media that you probably do know. Um, and again, he didn't have anything to do with it as a writer. Uh, there there was some controversy. There was some controversy. That, there uh, was, accusations of plagiarism. Yeah, there was some plagiarism uh, that took place, uh, and that was stemming not from one of his fiction books, but from his uh, philosophical treatise, uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race. So I guess maybe we can like start off with the, uh, I guess, like the, the obvious critique of Ligotti as a writer is his nonfiction and that he is... Uh, you can you can view him, I guess, certainly from our lens as a too edgy for you kind of guy, uh, because he is uh, a true pessimist uh, in the philosophical context. Okay, well, let me jump in on this because 
that's actually the first thing that I read of Lagardis was conspiracy mm. against the human race. And I mean, we could talk about that quite a while. Um, I would say, I, I think it is a wonderful book, but I, yeah. I say that knowing everything that goes with that. Uh, it's, it's the kind, I would say about that book that if it's something that unfortunately interests you, like if you find yourself drawn to that, uh, you will enjoy it. But I would say to, this kind of may be true of his work generally, because it's not so much a nonfiction. I believe the subtitle of the book is a contrivance of horror. Mm. Uh, it is actually a work of horror. Um, and it's similar to even in his earlier, his earlier short story collections. Uh, there's one called, I believe it's notes on the writing of a horror story Yeah, where he's kind of talking about the craft, but it's, but it turns out that he's also telling a horror story and having read conspiracy, uh, and then reading his stories, uh, it really informs everything. Uh, it's, uh, if you want to understand where he's coming from and what, or rather what he's even, what he's doing, uh, it is worth reading. Uh, it's a few words on antinatalism. Uh, I just, what I, I think is, I, I wouldn't call it an edgy book because what it is, is actually, it's a very, it's a very sensitive book. Mm. It's, it's uh, very sensitive and very honest and he's right. And he, he's well aware of how it's going to be received by, yeah. I guess, most people. I mean, he talks, spends a lot of time talking exactly about that. Uh, as for antinatalism itself, I mean, I think it's like, you're going to get an easy disavow from me, but it's not, that's kind of the, so the, the thing about antinatalism is it's ultimately an anti-Aryan philosophy. Yes. And it's anti-Aryan because the only people to whom have both the level of intelligence and the level of sensitivity to respond to it, specifically to its positive calls for, you know, uh, voluntary uh, extinction, uh, that would only apply to higher life forms. So yes. at the very least, the only serious antinatalist program would also have to involve extermination and it can't rest on some kind of like voluntary idea. And it's funny because most of the sources he uses in it uh, are like Nordics. Um, and Zappa, and Sharon as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's Sharon. Uh, it, it's it a, a very, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's born out of like most of what he's operating on is it's, it's, it's also, it's very anthropocentric too. Uh, yeah. I, Probably the thing I took biggest exception to was his attitude towards the non-human world. Um, but again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds. I I, I did appreciate it a lot. I, I thought it was really powerful. Book, it's it's book. yeah, it's, it's a, uh, very, it's a very it's a very well written book. And I think if people like if 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 we spurn people on to read his his short stories, and I and I I his short stories are absolutely worth reading. There are some that are incredibly good. And I want to sort of follow up on uh, eventually to uh, Ligotti as successor to Lovecraft, because I think there's there's something that's that's super important in that. Um, but if, if you, you know, if, if you're intrigued by the stories that we talk about this evening, check them out, 
you like the stories that you read, I, I would recommend Conspiracy Against the Human Race because whether or not you agree with the overall premise of it, it's a very well-written book. He is a very good writer. Yeah, part of the notion of horror is exposure to the weird. So, I mean, you don't have to engage with his argument on like an argumentative level. You can just be like just the argumentative experience of uh, antinatalism. Honestly, this is the way I usually encounter these things. Like I'm not going to try to line up mentally like my points against your points. I'm going to listen to your argument and not do like a cheap Freudian thing, but just appreciate from an aesthetic point of view, like a well-constructed argument coming from a completely different perspective that I disagree with for extremely like primitive and innate reasons that don't even really lead to any rhetorical clash. Like I can have like an, a long argument with somebody about tax policy, but if somebody is like, well, you shouldn't have kids because of X, Y, and Z, it's like, well, uh, I disagree. And my reasons for that have yours. absolutely yeah. nothing to do with like X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So we have nothing to talk about here. But I can still appreciate yeah, somebody who's like, well, like I like, you know, derive these points. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's interesting, I guess. I don't believe it, but it's interesting. I I mean, I agree with the fundamental premise that and it's where I'm coming from generally, which is that we we if it's within our power, we should be doing away with all unnecessary suffering. Yeah. However, that means cultivating higher life it doesn't it doesn't mean driving higher life forms to extinction well, like unnecessary yeah, mongrels really can run around and torture the, fucking the animals it, all over right. the world yeah yeah and uh anyways his argument is uh for in the conspiracy against the human race is basically that all is cope uh all all, all forms of human activity are, are effectively cope that are to prevent looking at the horror and the horror being the thing that should not be. And the thing that should not be is consciousness. And that's the theme in his work and in his stories also. I mean, the horror, he, he goes between su supernatural and maybe uh, you could say natural. Some of his stories, it, it really leaves it up in the air, whether or not there's supernatural forces at work. However, uh, consciousness to him, consciousness is in an, in effect a supernatural phenomenon on its own, which is plausible. It's uh, just so like, you want you know, I know that my redeemer lives, so like I'm down with consciousness and works that are created in his image. Like if you're not, then like the the argument becomes more convincing. Like you know, it's yeah, I don't know. It's like it's. I guess I, there's no point in me reiterating like there's just nothing to engage with there if you have different moral precepts. Like I don't actually think that reducing suffering is like that much of a priority. Like suffering is is a is a 
byproduct of a bunch of other stuff, most of which is worthwhile. So, like, to talk about reducing suffering, it's not like that's even a, a primary occupation. It's like reducing carbon dioxide is, like, the, we, the end you goal of life. While Ligotti would say malignantly useless. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> and that's, like, the 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 sort of engagement points where like uh you know you can appreciate life you can appreciate that life is made in god's image and you can also have the sort of uh, uh appreciation of horror that comes from looking at the uncanny when you see like a tumor with teeth like that's that's like a, a quintessential like horror elements, like the perception of the uncanny life that does not have a higher purpose life that does not appear to be created in anything that we would recognize as in God's image, but nonetheless self propagates and then exploring the tension. Like that's, that's the, the point at which uh, Ligotti and other horror uh, horror works like become interesting and enjoyable to me almost because of the contrast between uh like lives that are worth living and lives that aren't and uh exploring that saliency but it's uh it doesn't lead itself to a all-encompassing philosophy for me and in the case of the uncanny uh, well, if you have a godless and chaotic universe, then the human subject is itself uncanny because it is nothing more than effectively a flesh marionette. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the argument. It's like, you know, and that's where this spookiness comes in. It's like the idea that... Uh, the idea that humans can engage in like sacrifice of their own souls to evil end is like, you know, you're exploring that boundary and that's not really a, a there are some of his stories that have that as a thematic element, but it's not like a primary focus. It's just kind of an example of like, okay, well, I mean, there's the existence of evil like humans can like do these bad things. They can pervert themselves in ways or even like pervert themselves in ways that is conveyed on through like other people. Like it's, it's actually possible to like burn somebody else. Like the, the existence of that as a metaphysical concept is spooky. Uh, and it's it's something that you can engage with. It doesn't like lead itself to a first principle. Like all of this is derivable from. And I, I don't really want this to turn into like philosophy chat hour. So like maybe I should just like shut the fuck up. But like it, I don't think that well, anything so in, in to, the existence of like the... the spooky boundary like negates any of the precepts that you start with. I will just, so starting point, I'd say, I just find him to be a very honest writer. 
And I appreciate that. I think that's one of the best qualities a writer can have. And I would say uh, of the two living writers who I think are, uh, are probably among my favorites, uh, it would be Ligotti and Welbeck, I also view it as a horror writer um, and for similar reasons. But as to these themes, uh, one of the stories I'd like to talk about is the first story that appears in his first collection, I believe it was, which is uh, Songs of a Dead Dreamer. And it has a theme that I think we've, one of the themes we've been talking about, which he, he has a lot of the time, it's uh, the characters, the real horror is the characters coming to an awareness. Uh, I think a good, maybe a cinematic analog of the types of horror that you see in his stories is that scene in Mulholland Drive with the Winkies. Mm -hmm. Like I, that you could, I could see the Winkie scene as a Ligotti story. Uh, but the, the story I'm referring to is called the frolic. Uh, and I will be spoiling it. So if you want to read that, uh, um, go read it. It's not very long, but what makes it an interesting story? I mean, his there's a lot of he's very much he's a very modern writer. Um, plays a lot with text and so reminds me also a lot of Abakov in mm -hmm. terms of like how he how how he uses language. Uh, but from the start, it's just like you know that <laughs> the bad thing is going to happen, and you can even it doesn't take you long into the story. So his it's a, a shrink doctor with his young wife and they're living near a prison and he's working at the, they moved out to this prison to work at this prison. And he's, you know, established, he's got a young daughter and it's just this growing atmosphere of dread and, you know, danger or something, something's bad is going to happen. And you just partway through the story, you know that something bad is going to happen to his daughter. And the whole point of it is that, he knows before he knows. Yeah. Uh, he, it, 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 like, there's a point in which, like, you, the reader, pretty much, you, you know what's going to happen. And part of him also knows what's going to happen. And it's just about his realization when he finally looks at the empty bed and sees the, uh, uh, what is it, the torn up deer, stuffed animal. Because, you know, the prisoner was John Doe. And so he gives him, he gives the daughter a doe, like, ha, ha, ha. There's a lot of little yeah. jokes like that in this work, too. Did you guys read this story? Do you have anything you'd like to say about it? Because I did. I, I so was, this is something that I wanted, I wanted to talk about the notion of, like, horror as a puzzle. Mm. Because it's, it's <laughs> very, um, I've realized, because I just sort of binge read a lot of Legati. And... Honestly, I don't read that much uh, horror. I watch a lot of horror movies, um, which is a completely different experience. Uh, but there's always this sort of thing that I caught myself doing where I'm reading and I realize that I'm trying to figure out figure out the story. Um, like, so you know that, like, okay, there's, like four characters in this short story and it's a horror story something bad is going to happen you know almost immediately that like it, 
I'm like, and like, this is what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, I'm establishing like, okay, we've got all these characters and something bad is going to happen. Who's going to get it? Uh, is somebody going to like come to a horrible realization that they are the real killer? Like, is there going to be some face reveal or whatever? Uh, that doesn't ruin the uh, aesthetic experience for me, but I can see that that's kind of like a trap almost that you can fall into that really distracts from the aesthetics when you are trying to figure out like what the deep, dark secret act three reveal uh, is going to be. Uh, I don't know. Does, does anyone else, does anyone else do this? No, it's it's actually that's um, yeah. It's, well, this it's, is what this is what I was talking about. Yeah, no, it's it's. That, I think that's that's sort of a common um, sort of mode for readers when you're dealing with um, literature in specific genres. You know, it's it's the it's the who it's the who done it kind of uh, sort of trap. A lot of us sort of find ourselves in, um, which is fine. But and I agree with you. It is. I think if you catch yourself doing that while reading Ligotti, it's deleterious to understanding, to having a better understanding of his work because so much of the greatness of these stories, um, and The Frolic is an excellent example of this, is the atmosphere. It is sort of the settling of things. And you're just, there's an inevitability that sort of seeped into this story. And it's, this this sort of the 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 idea of sort of inevitable doom is is a is a carry-all theme for a lot of his a lot of his stories um if you're trying to figure out the you know how is this going to happen and and you know what does this you know really mean you're sort of your brain is sort of not focusing on the right things so well that's that's what it plays with so yes the reason the the dread in that story is that the doctor is putting out of his mind something that he he wants to believe is not possible. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to accept it could be possible, so he doesn't look at it, which is that, you know, this this uh, lunatic pedophile murderer uh, is almost maybe some kind of supernatural entity. Demon. Know, something, you yeah. Know, that he's, because he claims... He claims that he could leave the prison anytime he wants. And so and he's trying at the same time to comfort his his wife, who's, you know, kind of like some kind of bourgeois airhead lady, you know, and he's like, you know, everything is normal and everything's OK. This isn't possible. But at the back of his mind, he still has the fear that it's possible and he doesn't want to to look at it. And so the horror is the realization. Yeah. And the, the, like, there's a line in it. It says because uh, when he goes up. You know, he's doing shit, and he goes upstairs. But he knows before. So this line says, uh, "He knew, and he did not know." That's italicized. And I want to read the letter that was left, actually, because it's it's just very, very Legati, and uh, it's we leave this behind in your capable hands, for in the black foaming gutters and back alley of paradise. In the dank, windowless gloom of some intergalactic cellar, in the hollow, pearly worlds found in sewer-like seas, in starless cities of insanity, and in their slums, my awestruck little deer and I have gone frolicking. 
see you anon, Jonathan Doe. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's not overwritten, but it's not underwritten. <laughs> Like uh, and I don't know. It, I don't know if I want to bring up another story, but uh, I've noticed that with a lot of Ligotti, you can you can call me a bad parent if you want, but turns out that the uh, more atmospheric Ligotti stories, where nothing much like quote unquote happens until the end, they have a very calming effect on waffle time. Uh, for children <laughs> uh, like the uh, it, it's kind of like Jane Austen where it works a lot better if you read it out loud because there are uh, sort of like hypnotic repeating uh, yes. phrases I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the uh, the short story The Bungalow House which is yes. the first story of his that I read and it turns out there's uh, there's a great um, I forget the name of the podcast I want to say Pseudopod, um, but they have a uh, audio version of it that really uh, is well recorded and conveys the repeated phrasing of you know the audio taped dream monologue of the bungalow house like these these like little two or three word phrases. Dad, tell us more about the people. infinite pain of each. Yes. Well, you see, uh, it's kind of like school. There's uh, there's no one to know, uh, nothing to do, and nothing nowhere to go. <laughs> Bus Dad, is almost what here. Did you mean by malignantly useless? <laughs> I mean, Ligotti is he's not uh, an explicitly violent writer. I mean, no. there is uh, grotesque no. things that happen, but he tends to skew like actual bloodshed. Uh, and typically, a lot of the times, the murderers, I, I or you know, various assorted uh, perverts or madmen, uh, they tend to have a uh, in their the way their delusions are portrayed. Even when they're committing, you know, horrific crimes, they see them quite another way. You know, they see them as maybe some kind of beautiful work of art. And that's that's kind of his charm, actually. I think of the uh, uh, the trilogy that appears in the first in the first of his story collections, uh, the uh, Nike uh, Nike to lot How do you how do you fucking say that? I had to look that word up too. Apparently, it's uh, night blindness. Mm. Mm. Uh, Nike Nike to lops trilogy. It's the one that has the the chymist, um, and then the drink to me only with labyrinthine mm. eyes, uh, which is a good one. And then uh, what's the third one in that? Oh, Eye of the Lynx. Uh, yeah, the first one is the, it ends with a really interesting murder in terms of like how, it, how he describes it. Yeah, that's the, that's the one with now Rose of Madness Bloom. <laughs> I like the one where he, the hypnotist, has a, a corpse dancing around the room as everyone at this party, like some kind of high society party, has them all dancing and talking with a corpse. That's well, the, the drink to me with the, only labyrinthine eyes. 
the the puppet as metaphor for humanity is a element of his fiction that might uh like might people might find that just like a strange motif that he uses and it is a, a constant motif it, it's uh I, I think one of the one of my favorite stories in uh songs of a dead dreamer is uh dr Voke and mr veach which plays very much into sort of the 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 puppetry the artificiality uh of uh existence um but yeah that's that's definitely something that's 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 definitely one of his uh go-to um go-to tropes that he uses well and often there's a reversal too where mm-hmm. it's you have the somebody else is the deluded one or somebody else is the puppet and usually when the characters think that way it's going to come back at them yeah. at the end yeah the story about the uh the do you want to talk more about glass. the bungalow house hank oh god yeah Bungalow. So I didn't get a chance to say bungalow house, and I wanted to oh, make sure I got to house. say bungalow house. <laughs> yes, the bungalow house. The subject of the audio cassette tape recording, <laughs> the recorded dream monologue dream left by the artist. Monologues. Yes, <laughs> I mean. It's, Do you have any it's, any other material by the artist of the bungalow, bungalow house? house? <laughs> <laughs> It's, we it's, lost, so, it's so much fun to yes. like this is this is part of the reason because there's uh again you know common to many uh I, I mean almost every short story certainly uh but also a lot of horror uh there's in most of these stories there's only like three or so uh actual characters that have uh uh, different uh, like viewpoint or voices, and there's a lot of like first person uh, narration too. Like probably mm-hmm. about fifty fifty of his output is uh, first person, so it makes it uh, easy to relate like the different voices. In the bungalow house, there's this uh, this art gallery uh, owner uh, Dala. And then there's the uh, the narrator, and those are the only two uh, speaking roles in the the entire thing. I guess there's a janitor at one point, but he has like a, oh, I'm not supposed to let you in. Like somebody stole the tape recorder. That's about the only thing that he says. So it's very easy to um, relay things in like specific manners of speaking to like do the voices uh, as a a child would say uh, when they're being. Uh, for, forcibly read the bungalow house <laughs> but uh i mean the the gist of the plot is that this uh this essentially librarian uh ends up finding uh these audio cassette recorded dream monologues of the bungalow house and abandoned factory and gets very, very into them because they express uh, this sort of uh, misanthropic, nihilistic, uh, Thomas Ligottian sentiment that he himself pictures and goes on a uh, quest to try to find the uh, the author. Uh, and no spoilers on who the, uh, the author turns out to be. Again, like if you're approaching this as a puzzle, it's pretty freaking obvious from yeah. the get-go. 
um, who exactly the author is. It's like, so one of two people, guys. <laughs> um, but the uh, the language and the aesthetic effect of the repeated uh, phrasing, the intermixing of like the explicit uh, uh, renderings of the dream monologues, uh, it leads to a aesthetic effect of like this descent into nihilism that culminates uh, by the end of the uh, short story. Uh, I always get the the uh, three clauses, the order mixed up um, and end up accidentally rhyming them. So maybe I can do that now. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, and no one to know as a ideal uh, sort of human ending state. Um, <clears throat> and it, uh, it relays very well uh, as sort of a aesthetic experience of nihilism um that's that's why i like it like purely the uh the aesthetic experience of like listening to the words as they're sort of constructed for uh this particular effect um so, so it's not I, even particularly spooky there ends up being a murder but like it's sort of as an aside so on on the topic of the aesthetic uh question I, this is a, a an excellent segue, and 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 I want to sort of focus in on the the bungalow house here, because this was one of the first stories that I read of of Thomas Ligotti, and without knowing anything um, of the man, I knew um, preternaturally that this man was from the Rust Belt, and um, for those of uh, you listening who are from the Rust Belt and you want to, to, to know or you want to relive uh, the feelings of, uh, of living, being born and raised in uh, post-industrial America, uh, Thomas Ligotti is probably the best American writer who's, who's ever sort of been able to express the level of hopelessness, despair, and decay that one sort of has to deal with. Uh, and for those of you who are blessed uh, being have born... Have you read the one, Titus, about the factory that doesn't have any... That's, like, sealed off completely from the outside? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a lot. Yes. So, yeah. so this is, like, this can sort of go numerous ways here. But, um, and I, I, I guess I can, I can bring this up now. So I, I said earlier in the podcast that Ligotti is a successor to Lovecraft. And by that, I mean not only as a, a writer who comes after, right? Um, I mean successor in the sense of political outlook and, and philosophy in a lot of ways. If you, if you look at Lovecraft's work, uh, work that is is imbued with a lot of our politics, there is a nihilism there, but it is always stayed off. It is fought back just for the, the barest of second. There is an inevitability there, but there is also a chance of, uh, of a reprieve. 
the Call of Cthulhu is, is the, probably the most strident example of this, where you have the old god. The old god does rise, but on a twist of fate, humanity is saved when the ship crashes into him and he sinks back down to sleep again. And you can sort of extrapolate a whole bunch of, of sociopolitical themes on that, right? Obviously, Lovecraft was very much concerned about the rate of immigration. He was concerned about the First World War. There are a lot of sort of apocalyptic the, the the apocalypse was happening in Lovecraft's time, and he was portraying, perhaps cynically or perhaps uh, heroically, via Nietzschean lens, that there's a, a whether or not it, there's a triumph at the end of it, fighting is a good thing. Ligotti is a is a successor to Lovecraft in that the old gods have risen and they reign supreme. The fight is lost. There is nothing left. Anything left is is decay and rot, and I think that for, for me this this is the 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 beauty. Um, it's a it's a tragic beauty. Um, it certainly is nihilistic, um, but it's 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 he's an incredibly powerful writer, and he's he's able to convey the feelings of of hopelessness in our present day age that. I don't think there's a single other writer that can that can do that as well as he does. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like so. In the, his... uh, Lovecraft is like, oh no, a beast from the great beyond, larger than human eyes can comprehend. Ah, I'm going insane, and Ligotti is like, finally, yes. <laughs> Right. Yeah, he talks about it, uh, about Lovecraft and conspiracy. And I don't have the book in front of me, but he breaks down. He gives like, and I, I think that uh, I don't think this was originally his. I think it was, uh, what's his name? The German or is it Austrian? Uh, I, he, so anyways, point is he breaks the, the different methods of cope down into uh, I think one so one is anchoring uh, which is you know finding refuge in some form of connectedness or rootedness to maybe to country or to blood uh, to tradition um, and he and then the others being uh, I think one is like just distraction and the other is a heroic sort of a response Nietzsche in response, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then there's sublimation, which is what he says that he's doing, which is just absorb absorbing himself in it uh, and engaging with it in order to ease the pain of it, essentially. But he said that basically Lovecraft was was doing the anchoring, mm -hmm. which is quite true. I mean, Lovecraft was uh, trying to he was concerned about his little his little nook of the universe in New England. Yeah. And the threats to it. But I think with Lagatti, it's like this is it's all collapsed. Yep. There's no there's not no there's no shelter to be found. You, you wanna I, I wanted to talk a bit about the mundane, speaking of no shelter, because that's that's one of the themes is that the characters will try he puts a lot of repetition and emphasis on mundane aspects of life. And 
he does this because that's where people are basically seeking shelter from the horror at the heart of being or whatever, you know, um, little details, whatever it may be. Uh, mint, you want to talk about the gas station carnival, Titus? Yeah. <laughs> Sitting around sipping my cup of mint tea. <laughs> so gas station carnivals um, and, and, and um, gas station carnivals is probably in my favorite book by Ligotti, which is the Teatro Grotesco, which is the theater of the grotesque. Um, I would say all of his short story collections are are great. All of them are definitely worth reading. Um, Teatro uh, has uh, two of my favorite um, stories by him. And Gas Station Carnival's uh, ranks up there. It, it it might be my favorite of Ligotti's um, because it, it plays with a lot of things that are uh, really evocative towards sort of the horror that he's sort of focusing in on and trying to explore. Um, identity, uh, delusion, um, the sort of like the psychosomatic um, element of, of physical and mental pain and their relationship to, to, to uh, each other. Um, and also, uh, sort of like post-industrial society. There's 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 a very the sort of conceit or the or the uh, I'm, I'm not going to spoil the story for you guys because I think it's a story that absolutely deserves to be read. Um, the sort of conceit of the story is a one of the characters is reminiscing on this childhood memory of traveling with his parents and coming across repeatedly uh, amongst their travels, these gas station carnivals in the middle of nowhere, where the, and, and you can imagine sort of, you know, a, a very rural gas station from like the 1950s that is very much in disrepair. And they have these, these sideshows, they have these carnival rides that are defunct and decrepit and broken down. And they have these sideshows, one of which has a creature that is repeated. Uh, he continues to pop up, he continues to arise, and the character comes to realize that this creature might be, might have, he might have been interacting with him longer than he remembers the gas station carnival. Um, and it's the character of the showman. Um, and in and, order to gain access to the gas station carnivals, you have yes. to have purchased a, some amount of gasoline. Maybe yes, you have to have bought enough gasoline in order to go to the gas station carnival. Yeah, so it's it's to purchase it's, the quantity of gasoline necessary to go to the gas station carnival is necessary to speak to the proprietor of the gas station at which the carnival inevitably took place. And he has a, a, a really great... Um, <laughs> exactly. The, uh, uh, the uh, what is he? Because I, I just reread this. Um, it's like uh, the, the tins of uh, chewing tobacco. And I inquired as to the brands of the chewing tobacco, and he could not recall the brands of the chewing tobacco. The brands of the chewing tobacco at the gas station <laughs> hosting the gas station carnival? <laughs> But I, I, I really do. Uh, it's it's an incredibly um, 
it's an incredibly well done piece. And I'm trying to I'm couching my words because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Um, but I think it's. Yeah, I, I don't know, even I know we, if you we, can spoil it. I mean, it's it like it's well, I don't that's want kind of the point of the story. Yes, yes. But I, I don't want I don't want it to I, I don't want um, I don't want to give too much away, I guess. Uh, I want people to experience it for themselves. But I, I guess what I what I can bring up on on this is uh, the types of the protagonists. We we mentioned in the bungalow house, um, the librarian. We mentioned in the frolic, the psychiatrist, um, a sort of recurring type of protagonist that Ligotti really does enjoy uh, to employ. And I think this is this is interesting because we can look back on on Lovecraft to this absolutely, but we can also just sort of explore sort of the deeper ramifications of the type of protagonist in horror fiction. And that is the um, the dingy bohemian artist. Um, like these like this type uh, pops up in a lot of Lovecraft stories. And whereas for Lovecraft, there is a he, and he does have like Lovecraft employs uh, artists as protagonists. But for the most part, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, a lot of the main characters are, are intellectuals. They're they're professors. They're students. Um, they are uh, on their way towards uh, sort of like the, the managerial, you know, cast. Um, and, and I think a, a, a noticeable difference uh, within sort of the differentiating between Lovecraft's time and uh, Ligotti's time is that the sort of bohemian indigent dirtbag uh, like sleaze artist uh, is is <laughs> he, he sort of has a higher uh, uh, prominence in in sort of Ligotti's in the cities that he draws up. I mean, every time that I uh, have a protagonist who is a academic, uh, it's it's always like, but bro, like, shouldn't shouldn't she be trying to publish right now? <laughs> like the uh, the amount of I don't precarity, know if I was on mute, but... oh. the amount of precarity in that uh, profession right now, it almost makes uh the choice of some uh, uh like in the um the uh the the festival last feast of the harlequin yes it's like and so i uh i i spoke to my university and i arranged a two week sabbatical so that i could investigate this clown festival it's like yeah <laughs> I mean, uh, should i assume you've already gone insane at this point uh, but i i mean i guess it's like from a practical perspective, uh, it's it's sort of traditional to have that kind of protagonist because they uh, like that's a horror trope at this point. Yeah, it gives you an excuse to be like yeah, wandering they're, they're curious, around uh, looking obsessive. for esoteric knowledge with like weird bits of understanding of things. No, I agree. I agree. I said earlier, I don't know if I was on mute, but the character you're describing, Titus, that does seem to pop up in Lagadi. Uh, it reminds me of the protagonist from Newt Hampson's Hunger, 
Yes, yes. Now that's a, that's and very in the much... case of uh, the gas station carnival, uh, you even have like his because I, I would describe that story as being one about uh, mutually mutually reinforcing delusions mm. that, that we're all participating. That's that's a theme. It's a, yes. someone if if I'm being subsumed in someone else's delusions, then I don't have to think about my own. Yeah. You know, and so I can I can entertain the delusion that I am not delusional talking to this delusional man as I sip my mint tea, which is not doing anything for my stomach. Yeah, and it's you know, it's a grounding too in reality is because it's this, uh, something is like stomach pain. It's like, well, mm -hmm. this surely must be real. Right. It's stomach yeah. pain. It, it won't go away. Do not eat the hot dogs at the gas station carnival. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about the role of the supernatural um, just in, in his works? Because I've said a little bit about what I think he seems to believe as, as regarding the supernatural. But it's not supernatural in the convention. It's not like Lovecraft, where Lovecraft, you have a, a clear line drawn between the so-called you know natural world. Mm -hmm. And then those those lines are clearly broken by something that actually is a part of the natural world, uh, but it's in such a way that it uh, it shatters the where the, the limits were previously thought to be. Titus, you want to take this on? Titus on Supernatural. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm trying to think here. Um, I think the Supernatural... He, he does have a um, Lovecraft certainly is a uh, inspiration to him. Um, and there are some stories that that feel very much Lovecraftian. There are some stories that he employs the Lovecraftian mythos. Um, the uh, sect of the idiot is a great example where he just it's 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 his uh, version of, of and it's not his version of Asathoth. It's Lovecraft's version of Asathoth. It's just a legati story uh, on uh, that god. Um, so, but for the most part, um, the horror that legati is employing, the, the sort of the supernatural elements of it, um, aren't viewed as, I guess, you, I guess you can say, and Nick, you can correct me if, if, I'm, if I misread it, um, the alienness of the sort of supernatural force is very, it's far more grounded in, in sort of the real. And, 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 and I think for Ligotti, the, the suggestion that he's implying is that the horror is, is the real, um, and it's just an extension of, uh, or rather like sort of a, a, a hyper reality of everyday existence. If I'm off mark, let me know. <laughs> I mean, well, I think there, there's I like... Actually, oh. You go ahead, Hank. Well, so the the crap writer version of this is Stephen King, where it's yes. like... Yeah, there's a, 
there's an evil clown uh, that you catch glimpses of, and then you just like you talk to the fucking clown, and he explains like, yes, I am a space alien, and uh, I require screams to live, uh, and uh, so here I am to frighten you. It's like ah, I'm losing my mind. Uh, it, it, it's almost like the um, there's much more like implication going on in Legati whenever there's a encountering of a uh, uh, a supernatural force, yeah. uh, like in the um, the last feast of the Harlequin. Um, so there's a I don't. All these things, I don't think that they really even lend themselves to spoilers because it's like uh, it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, like it's yeah. not like oh, I cracked the case, boys. Uh, but there's this uh, this pr- professor um, who is a mentor, a former teacher of the uh, protagonist, and uh, he ends up leading this uh, this cult. Uh, and uh, there's this, you know, couple of paragraph long digression where he's introduced as like Professor Tooth or something. Mm. Uh, and it's like, oh, Toth, the Lord of Magicians, the Teacher of Lies, etc. Like the uh, uh, the Toth uh, tarot deck, the uh, mm. Aleister Crowley invention. The Egyptian, um, the Egyptian god. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but like in that in that guise, like through that uh, that interpretation. So like there's there's the implication that like the idea that he is Toth is, and I I don't care if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I will microaggress Egyptian deities any day of the week. Um, the idea that he is this figure is like slipped in as a narrative construction where it's not clear if that phrasing is like the protagonist making that implication Mm. if it's some sort of uh external force introducing that idea into the protagonist's mind or if it's like a delusion on the part of the protagonist it's never like hi uh you remember me i'm professor tooth and like turns out like face off i'm actually tough you might remember me from uh my nile sacrifices so the like the existence of uh like what the particular metaphysics are of whatever evil and it's almost always evil i think always actually for all always evil yeah (laughs) yeah always uh trying to trying to remember like uh some legati angels i don't i don't think there's any uh (laughs) it's their their metaphysics are always colored through the lens of a uh protagonist uh who might or might not be going insane in their perception of the thing yeah um or at least like colored through like uh a, a reality that's already fractured uh to the extent that like the metaphysical status of particular uh identities is 
fraught. Yeah. The the, the so, mythos the mythos is is left deliberately vague, um, whereas Lovecraft has a very sort of Anglo uh, turn of the 20th century like systemization of everything. Everything is sort of he kind of uh, uh, um, constructs the Cthulhu mythos as a English anthropologist would, uh, you know, divvy up the mythology of some Bantu tribe. It's very systematized. Every well, god has their very specific sort of orientation, who they worship, what they do. And with Lagadi, it's it's far more vague and it's far more unsettling because it's just another, it's a greater level of, of not knowing. It, it, one of the good comparisons you could make to Lovecraft is that in Lovecraft stories, maybe someone goes insane, you know, they they see something that should not be, and then it's like they have to be carried off on a stretcher to the crazy farm or whatever. But mm. in the case of Legati stories, like, the characters are already completely fucking insane. Yeah. But everyone, it, like, because insanity is a is another is a form of cope to deal mm. with what is the horror at the heart of being. I mean, he tells you what he's doing. Like I, so for example, I mean, this is one way we can tie it into maybe the broader themes of the show. I mean, whether or not you share Gotti's deep pessimism and I mean, really metaphysical nihilism. Yeah. Uh, you do have a problem when it comes to horror which is how do, how do you compete with the horror show that is the 21st century, you know, the conqueror worm that is America? Yeah. I mean, how do you compete with this shit in fiction? I mean, it's it's fiction. So it's not it's not real, yeah. you know, whereas there's real horrors, whether you feel that existence itself is horror or not. Uh, at the very least, you would probably agree that the current state of things under this the decaying system in the western world is filled with endless horrors all the time i mean just read the news how does it, how do you compete when you write fiction and Lagodi addresses this uh specifically maybe maybe not so much from the uh you know real world like political sort of angle but from his own perspective here's here's what he says uh, i'll read a brief quote uh, madness chaos bone deep mayhem devastation of innumerable souls while we scream and perish history licks a finger and turns the page fiction unable to compete with the world for vividness of pain and lasting effects of fear compensates in its own way how by inventing more bizarre means to outrageous ends among these means of course is the supernatural in transforming natural ordeals into supernatural ones, we find the strength to affirm and deny their horror simultaneously, to savor and suffer them at the same time. I mean, Ligotti's pretty open about what, what he's doing. I mean, yeah. he, he basically explains it in Conspiracy, and, he, and you see it elsewhere in his kind of, like, metafictional. Because this, this is not, that was not from Conspiracy. That's actually... Uh, from Professor Nobody's Little Lectures, which is in uh, Songs of a Dead Dreamer. Uh, but he, he basically will tell you what he's doing is is it's his form of coping. Yeah. You know, some people uh, find religion 
Uh, some people find distractions. Some people find distractions in you know hedonism. Uh, maybe some people cope by becoming axe murderers or whatever. Uh, he writes supernatural horror, and that appears to. Be, I mean, he tells you that's why he's doing it. So I, I, I find again. I started by saying I find him to be a very honest writer, and that yeah. makes him very compelling to me. You know, and he has a he has a way like a like a magician of making you see things how he does. You know, this it, it tends to be those those kinds of reversals, like it's someone else's delusions, uh, but then you get sucked into it, or the characters view someone else's pain and delusions from a distance, and they realize that they're actually part of it, or it's their own delusions, etc. As for the last feast of the Harlequin and, and Lovecraft, I, I thought was really funny about that story is it's like he takes one of these old world New England towns from a Lovecraft story. This and is like plops it in the Midwest. Yes. So <laughs> like, so just like picks up the whole thing. Last last feast of the Harlequin. I wanted to speak. I wanted to I, I, I chose that um, story to to talk uh, about um, for two things. Um in in my opinion, it's it's his version of Shadow Burnsmith. Um, it's a uh, I think I believe it's the only story uh, that he dedicates uh, specifically to Lovecraft. Um, and I think there's a lot of parallels between Innsmouth and Harlequin. Um, first and foremost, it's the tale of a academic or an academically minded person venturing into a small town. Uh, and discovering uh, otherworldly, uh, terrible uh, horrors, um, the sort of change or sort of the 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 twist to it is that the um, the lauded sort of professor, the professor that you would find in a in a, in a uh, Lovecraft uh, story, who would be teaching at Miskatonic University and would be helping out uh, the poor inbred souls of, uh, of, uh, Dunwich to expel, uh, you know, another worldly beast. The twist for Ligotti is that that intellectual, that sort of noble ideal of the intelligent hero is the chief practitioner of the evil that's being taking place. So I think there's, there's that sort of switch, I think says an awful lot about, uh, I think our contemporary uh, uh, situation, uh, you know, academia is no longer the uh, place where one finds uh, the Madison Grants and the Lothrop Stoddards of uh, Lovecraft's time. We we find the the horror makers and not the uh, defeaters of horror. Um, and I think that's a, a pretty great and important distinction. Yeah, I believe that story was also, I think he dedicated that to Lovecraft, did he not? Yep, yep. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. My really, I don't know what you guys' general general relationship to horror is. Uh, I've never been a big fan of certain types of uh, like. I like I've never read Stephen King. Actually, I know I, I take it back. I read Carrie when I was pretty young. Um, but horror, like I think, really good horror is just among the best of art because yes what it's what it does is it 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 forces you to look at something uh, and even makes it seductive to look at it you know something that otherwise you would try to put out of your mind and 
a master of horror is somebody who's going to bring those things that are on the edges of your consciousness into full focus. And that's, uh, uh, it requires a lot of talent to be able to do that well. And I would, I would, I would say, um, and this is something that I don't think is often, I think uh, part of this is brought up um, in our circles, the sort of uh, the right wingedness of, um, of horror. Um, but I think it's worth exploring sort of the origins of the genre as popularly understood. It's, it's a genre that took place um, because of the Enlightenment. It is a counter enlightenment genre of literature, uh, explicitly so. Uh, when you have sort of yeah, the, it was reactionary in origin, largely. Yes, yes, it is. It's it's an explicitly reactionary form of literature, um, which is the reason why Stephen King isn't good because he isn't a reactionary. Um, only only people who are of a uh, right mind. <laughs> Are good and 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 I would say, despite the sort of nihilism and and the antinatalism and and all of that, um, of of Ligotti, um, I think his politics. I think I think his politics would be. Uh, I don't think he would be a nihilist if he was a fascist. That's that's what I would. That's what I would say. I, I think he's his political problems um, are one of 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 a lack of. Uh, having our well, he just didn't choose that form of coping. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, well, yeah. He well, would he say can. that that's just another uh, another yes. form of, uh, like a, a of taking, you know, this of channeling your not wanting to suffer this uh, <laughs> into a different direction. And, well, there, the, it's and the, it's I, the I don't. I, I try to avoid the right wing. I, I admit to having some. Some uh, some degree of reactionary tendencies. I mean, I I think that's kind of a given. I mean, we do a, a racist internet podcast. I, I think most of our enemies would probably call us reactionaries, though we don't. We have different views amongst ourselves. However, I would say to your point, Titus, that it in order to be, you have to have a certain element of courage to look at things, yeah, as they actually are, uh, as opposed to just you know living in a world of delusions of how you prefer to believe that things are because that's i mean that's how the system works the system is you don't have to chip away very far to find just absolutely grotesque horrors going on all around you i mean america just an example i'm i tend to bring up it's america has a system of sodomy a sodomy gulag system where you know you you fucking come afoul of the system in in even the most minor way, and you're going to be tortured potentially for the rest of your life. Yeah. And people like to put this out of their minds because if they had it in their minds, it would have to inform everything else that they're that they're doing or saying about about you know whether it be politics or something happening in the news. And a lot of the way that stuff is targeted to libtards is just it's about sheltering them from accepting this i mean they there's all kinds of things that go against what their supposed principles are uh, that they collaborate in yeah because they're given this delusional ecosystem where their their fancies are flattered yeah a, a, a flat fancy flattering industrial complex essentially for the libertarian 
so I do I do agree that like really good horror, uh, there is something I guess maybe politic. There's it's an expression of a of a of a tendency that if it manifested itself elsewhere would be maybe you'd say politically incorrect. Mm-hmm. Hank, are you still with us? I am. Uh, I'm thinking about... Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, yes. Like, horror is coded as right-wing, obviously. Uh, I'm trying it to construct in my mind, because I I really... You know, the metaphysics of horror um, is something that I've thought about a little bit, but not sort of the, uh, the correspondence between... Uh, sort of the genre per se and the uh, the political angle. And there's kind of an obvious entry point in that horror, um, as you said, Nick, it's the uh, sort of the the experience of confronting uh, the thing that you prefer not to look at, um, almost like a a titration of like this sort of everyday horror of human existence into your uh your consciousness and i'm thinking specifically like by analogy the other genres that are sort of pseudo right-wing uh coded like um adventure stories are uh, very um right-wing coded uh you know anything where you can plausibly describe it as a a colonial uh, or a colonialist narrative where uh, like white savior pair drops into hostile tribes man seems like you might want to examine your preconceptions it's like, like no i i don't need to examine them i can just enjoy the ride here um but it's almost uh it sort of reminds me of the the tragedy comedy distinction that like you know the all of these genres they're they're sort of um different uh different metaphysics of conflict um and the way that like you know quote-unquote right wingers deal with conflicts the way that they engage with the idea of conflict per se uh, versus the uh, the sort of lib libtard uh, metaphysic of like passive aggressiveness or like conflict avoidance or conflict engagement, but like we come in the name of peace or zog or whatever. Uh, I don't know. It's it's obviously not fully fleshed out, but I feel like there's something there uh, that the experience of perhaps confronting the unknown and perhaps being subsumed by it, it has the same sort of role that like uh, a a tragic hero uh, may encounter some unconquerable adversary because of his own uh, frailties and uh, suffer for it. That's just my, my rambling, uh, uh, strain of a uh, stream of thought well, of uh, consciousness there. 
I haven't been able to find a PDF copy of it. I don't think it exists. Uh, but I know that E. Michael Jones has written a book on horror that I've always been interested to read, even though I can kind of get what he's probably going to say about it. Uh, but I'd like to see his analysis of like 80s uh, slasher movies or maybe like Italian giallo films because, I mean, what are those movies other than like uh, sexually loose women yes. being like chopped into pieces? Well, uh, right? Horror films are like uh, a completely book, different like thing. It's like, that's literally the only way that you can engage with philosophy on screen anymore. Like, that's the only genre that even makes an attempt at that uh, from any any perspective. Like, you, you cannot do that in any other than, like, the most facile manner in any other format. Or genre. Why, why, why is there? There's a plausible deniability to horror. Yeah, I mean, yeah, horror is like. I mean, couldn't you couldn't you yeah, like, have this in uh, science fiction or fantasy or anything where there's uh, a removal of the typical constraints of modernity, and so you can explore philosophical concepts? I mean, I assume that's what you're getting at. I, but I, I'd like to know why you yeah, think it's I, only I mean, you I can find a horror. Even doesn't really engage like on film and contemporary sci-fi. Uh, it doesn't really engage with any of these things, partly because. Like horror is it's cheap to make and it's profitable. So you can make like a two dollar or two dollar you can make a two million dollar horror movie that's like really weird and out there and uh like it follows is a good example of this mm. where the the horror monster is essentially transmitted disease. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a that's that's an interesting concept the way that it's spread out because it's like it's not even an std it's like the uh the metaphysical notion of like uh taint yeah uh like sexual taint that uh like you do actually see people play that out by passing that on to someone else in order to like quote unquote rid themselves of it. Uh, that's something I, I really don't see even in other like kind of quote unquote fantastical genres like science fiction and fantasy, like sci-fi tends to in contemporary film, they, they go for like cheap, like mind bending stuff, but it's all just super cheap and crappy like the uh interstellar like what if time travel is really ghosts of love and shit like man whoa like it's even uh yeah i'm trying to remember other like recent sci-fi that i've seen and it's it doesn't like it doesn't say anything interesting. You can have interesting aesthetics and characters and all the other um, stuff that you'd like in a well-formed movie, but frankly, it doesn't engage with metaphysics at all uh, as much as you get from even your your average slasher movie. Even just total schlock, uh, like the uh, the Halloween Kills or whatever, it has more interesting metaphysics than like any other movie that I've seen recently. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think it's because that if the sci-fi is not sci-fi horror, it it is it has to be optimistic ultimately. Yes, By if, if, it, if it's pessimistic, then it is. Well, hmm. yeah, like it can be it a little bleak. Um, like yeah. have you ever seen it can Vanilla be bleak, Sky? But hopeful. Uh, yeah. Vanilla Sky is a is a good example. I think of yeah. kind of manages to do a little bit of both. Yeah, uh, that's a based off a Spanish film actually. But Adam, you piped in here since we have you. What give us your give us your thoughts on the horror? I know you're not <laughs> a fan of Legati or anything like that. But I'm I'm not not a fan. I, I just yeah, uh, I'm your, not familiar. Give us your two cents. Uh, thanks. Um, right. Well, right, right, right. I enjoy horror when it's presented to me, but I never seek it out. Uh, as probably people can gather, I, I do enjoy science fiction um, for perhaps some of the reasons we've discussed. I, I still don't quite know why it's only in a horror or uh, horrible um, uh, presentation of a philosophical concept where you can only explore that that concept. I think you can be you know, uh, hopeful as well. But, uh, in general, I like uh, anything that is aesthetic and I am definitely a fan of movies that present a extremely believable villain, uh, and a situation that forces people to, uh, fight for survival, which I, I find exciting and interesting. And, uh, one of my favorite movies growing up, and this is sort of cliched perhaps, but, I, I really loved uh, James Cameron's uh, 80s uh, and 90s work. Uh, it was uh, bordering on the horror slash science fiction border, but uh, Aliens and Terminator are still some of my favorite movies, and I thought it was presented in a way that was uh, not so fantastical necessarily. Uh, it was more, I guess, again, science fiction, but obviously the alien movie from Ridley Scott was the original um, progenitor to the alien series. And that is often called a horror movie uh, because of just the grotesqueness of the creature that is presented. Uh, but I, I find the believability of it to be within the realm of possibility because you're exploring you know, extraterrestrial realms and you don't know what you're going to find out there. Uh, and I always enjoy a suspenseful scene that requires people to think and, and work in a way that is uh, requiring some thought and, and coordination. And things are not always as they seem, which is um, even more intriguing uh, intellectually, I guess. Um, is that uh, a, a deep metaphysical exploration of humanity? Probably not. It, you're just, you know, thrust into the woods and, you know, you're being chased by some uh, scary beast. But, um, you know, it explores the, the human element. And if, if the dialogue is good, I, I enjoy it. Do I watch, um, you know, like Escape of the Killer Clowns with chainsaws and meat hooks? I No, I, I don't. I don't understand why people actually find those interesting. I, I've noticed women uh, like them, perhaps because they they get excited. They're perhaps more emotional by nature. I mean, they certainly are more emotional by nature, but why is it that they like horror? I've never really understood that, but I've noticed it. Um, 
so yeah, I don't know. As a kid, I would, I would wander through the video aisle at the rental store when they still had those. And I would be uh, impressed by like the, the cover art on some of these VHS uh, tapes, but I don't know. It just, it just seemed like kind of silly to me. And, um, so in terms of the reading of horror, um, I don't know. I read, uh, some of the spinoffs from the aliens movies, but again, that's more science fiction. So I don't know. It's just, it's just my take on all this stuff. When it comes to horror and literature, I've actually found that some of the scariest stuff I've ever read is not necessarily billed as horror. I mentioned Welbeck earlier, uh, and that fits into the picture I've been trying to paint on my take on all this. Generally speaking, it's that Welbeck is a very talented writer, and he's able to force you to look at things that you otherwise would prefer not to, to see. He's very good at doing that. In fact, actually, that's another book I've been meaning to pick up. Uh, Lovecraft actually, or Lovecraft, uh, there's a slip. Wellback actually wrote a book about Lovecraft. Uh, I have not been able to get a copy of that, but that's something I've always been interested in reading. Uh, and then uh, the other one would actually be Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, I think one of the scariest novels I've ever oh, American read Psycho. is Less Than Zero. Didn't mm. he write that? Uh, mm. Yep. Yes, he did. Yes, um, but less than zero. That 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 is a terrifying book because if you have any familiarity with like the types of people that the, the book's about, it, I mean, it's it's very believable and very real. Can I give my? But it's take? mundane. I mean, it's just about. Yeah, please, Hans. Well, I didn't, know if you were I didn't, mean, to, didn't mean to cut you off. No, I've been intently listening. No, no, no. Um. No, please give us your but take. I, you know, I wanted to at least give my take on uh, on why horror, I suppose, is, is right wing or, or there's an element of uh, uh, reactionary spirit to the horror genre. Um, for one, I, I think that the horror genre, even going back to uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and Going back much further to tales from the Bible, to Faust, to uh, you know, just endless stories, uh, the mm-hmm. Brothers Grimm, even uh, the the purpose of horror—I've always seen it—is to remind oneself of eternal lessons. Uh, don't trust certain people. There are worse things out there. There's always something that might want to eat you. There's always something that might want to take advantage of you, possess you. Uh, so most of horror, even in the modern day, you'll notice it draws from the supernatural mythologies. It draws from religion. It draws sometimes from this, you know, the concept of the axe murderer, the serial killer, uh, the psycho, um, or it'll be about um, some sort of uh, survival scenario. Or, you know, something to this effect. These are the main genres it falls into. Mm-hmm. Now, all these are very old circumstances. These are circumstances that humans have been going through for a very long time. Survival scenarios, running from monsters, running from other people, uh, people going insane and, and committing acts, uh, sometimes with great malice and, uh, and forethought uh, that are some unexplainable. Uh, they go against, you know, what's kind of conceived as human nature. And 
when you're willing to talk about these subjects and you're willing to craft stories around them and you're willing to acknowledge that there is something worse out there or there's something potentially evil within humans, uh, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're touching on something that's often very old. These are old human ideas. And anything that does that generally falls into a reactionary category. Anything that's uh, looking at something that is an eternal human problem uh, falls into that category. Because the opposite is living in, truly living in fantasy land. Uh, humans running from monsters <laughs> Uh, and and fighting monsters or, or being killed by uh, you know serial killers has been going on for tens of thousands of years. Um, but to deny any of that, that is that is a modern liberal thing that people are just sort of uh, creatures of their environment, and uh, there's nothing generally wrong with anyone. There are no monsters. There's nothing worse out there. There's nothing that can hurt you. There are no demons. There is nothing paranormal. Like oh, yeah, all this stuff. The concept of good and evil as yes, opposed to it's, relativism. Yeah, it's, it's a materialistic conception of reality, which is... Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and often, too, in a lot of horror, there's an element of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. On some level, even if it's just a conspiracy of one person, but there's an element of conspiracy in many great horror films or horror genres. Um, there has to be a secret... Yes, and this is antithetical to notions of most normal, most modern people, and certainly liberalism or left-wing ideas that there are secrets, that there is a conspiracy. You know, and look no further than these people um, reacting with great, great consternation at the notion of the word cabal. Yeah, these people are losing it. And I think many of them are not in a cabal. They're, uh, most of them clearly are too stupid. But the notion that there might be one is already insulting. Yeah, boy, you're such an idiot. How could you believe that people would scheme against you? You know, it's it's very strange. It's very modern. And uh, I know a lot of horror movies are stupid now, but. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't touch on something primordial in people, in people's past. Yeah. Uh, that brings me to a question, Hans. Uh, anyone, feel free to answer. But do you think, because obviously it, it goes without saying, that the only, it's not like the only consumers of horror literature or horror, uh, horror films or what have you are... Um, racists on the internet. <laughs> uh, this is it's a wide general audience for this. Uh, do you think that the libtard consumes horror as a form of catharsis and uh, a way of, uh, you know, getting in touch with the the shadow in their mind on some level that they just, that they typically like to put out of it, like they couldn't really tell you why what it is they like about it. They just like it to be scared. And I think that even with like more complicated, you mentioned it follows even with slightly more complicated or meaningful horror films. Um, they take the dumbest possible element of that. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember the common refrain in the reviews of that film were uh, like, this is about the stigma of STDs and we need to be more STD positive, you know, like, we shouldn't stigmatize people with herpes like that. 
that was their big takeaway from that movie. Nothing else. Nothing else about like maybe there's an element of uh, the stain of losing your virginity or or any number of these things or even you know they that's the that's their public facing takeaway though yes. I mean they're but but I think a lot of them just a lot of people but a lot of liberals they just want to be scared they don't really want to think about it beyond that they they associate horror with I'm scared. And they can't even really explain why they're scared. And I think if you pose to them, why is it that like a person running from uh, a monster scares you? It's I don't know. You couldn't you, you couldn't even have a conversation with them. Like, don't you think there's something to this? Like, do you think maybe our ancestors saw things like this, or they saw something pretty pretty terrible pretty often, and they grew to have a sense of fear whenever seeing anything big or or slimy or slithering you know like there's there's an element of of palpable fear there and i don't think many of these people ever consider any of it they just don't this is the uh red letter media uh line where to uh to a lot of moviegoers and especially for specific kinds of horror movie it's like a carnival ride yes yes what a great metaphor well i believe yeah, they, I said they said they had that I in that... they had that in reference to the uh those like stupid paranormal, paranormal activity activity movies yeah, yeah. and yeah. i mean see even there you can look at that and you cannot be cynical <laughs> and you can say there is something uh, at least terrifying about that. Like you're just a uh, an average normal person. One day you wake up and um, it turns out uh, you're you're being possessed by a demon, and you can't even really explain the, why. Yeah, and the horror, like the fact that things happen while you are asleep. Yes. which is like the entire conceit of those movies. Yeah. Like that's a, that's like a nugget of metaphysical horror that yes. each day you have this little death, but you know, you still, the idea of being possessed in one's sleep, that one is alive, but not conscious, but filled with some motive force, potentially when one is asleep. Uh, the idea that like, reality happens uh that you cannot perceive because of this need that you have to sleep like these are all uh these are all spooky metaphysical things like i mean you can like and then it's like movie number five comes out it's like, right, right. Yeah. i think and, we and got to the bottom of this guy and, and it's not even that hard i mean in the space of of five minutes, we all just kind of explored some of those themes without even trying. I mean, this is an off-the-cuff conversation. So it wouldn't be that hard for them to do it in these films or, or modern horror novels, which are just awful, like <laughs> just bad. And it would not be hard for them to touch on something a little more real or a little bit more important. But the carnival ride metaphor is very true in that the entire object is to just startle you. Yeah. 
It's not to scare you or to terrify you. It's Pavlovian. Yeah, it's, it's, you know it's coming. You yeah. know you're going to be startled, and you go to get startled for two hours, and then you walk away. I guess uh, that makes Dune the, uh, like, it's a small world uh, floaty ride. <laughs> <laughs> Space Mountain. Dune's like a, it's like a, a, a tram car through, like, a, 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 an empty building in Quebec or something. <laughs> Yeah, right after you smoked some like really, really strong pot, like you get on like an old bumper car ride in in you know eastern Canada. <laughs> and the existential dread and like trip out moments when you're looking at some uh like dark French Canadian woman. You know, that that's what Dune is for two hours. It's, it's, I mean, it's it's like that guy's, uh, like my favorite movie that guy did is I think is God, I can't. I think it was set in prisoners. I think it was set in Toronto. Uh, no, no, enemy. Yeah. Don't enemy. say arrival. That's actually that sucked. Good. Yeah, arrival was pretty bad. No, no, enemy. Oh, God, enemy was enemy a, is like enemy was a en- good movie. And enemy is it's it's funny because enemy I think was like explicitly like written by like an anti-fascist uh, like Portuguese <laughs> activist or whatever. Like it's based on a novel that's like very clearly uh a communist and it's a great film you know, but i am a sucker the other for guys, the, the doppelganger yeah group. well that, that guy's other film prisoners uh which has kind of been forgotten about but uh that's a great that's a great horror movie yes that's it a is. great horror story because yes, it it's, is. it's simple uh, people just vanish and there are, they there are people the ending, out there. though. I actually remember well, reading somewhere that the it was supposed to be a more bleak ending. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Well, but there even was still no the the, the underlying the underlying theme there. There are people, and this is true to real life, who will just take your kid. Yeah. And you will have no explanation, <laughs> and. If you dig too deep, what do you find? You know, you find that there's other crazy people. There's something else going on. And you realize you're surrounded by insane people. Insane people pursuing insane people who are committing acts against frightened, you know, slightly normal people who are slowly going insane. Like it, it's a, uh, it's great in that sense. It's very simplistic. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a primordial story. It's basically, you can think of it as, uh, if you're trying to connect it to something very old, what happens if the paleolithic, uh, uh, straw hut village, uh, experienced a bout of, uh, of cannibalism due to starvation or, or just people started going insane, kidnapping each other. You had crazy people pursuing the other crazy people. Everyone's slowly losing their minds. Like, it's terrifying. I mean, you imagine you're the only normal guy, you the person watching it. Watch all these people go insane. Um, so it is it is possible. I think I think that most horror, uh, inflicting a sense of horror in someone, you have to for, in order to really truly feel horror, you have to have um, a real disgust factor. You also, yes. I think, need to have a real sense of 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 uh, danger. 
Yeah. And uh, I think most you have to have a higher consciousness too. Yes. Like, in in most left, you, you know, like primitive two legs are capable of feeling fear, but horror is different. Horror. They feel they feel fear desire. in like a in like a gazelle sense where they they just run. You know. Right. It's 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 not exactly the same. I think that like if you go up to some bantus on the street and like perform a magic <laughs> trick, like you scare the shit out of them. Yeah, and that's what, that's effectively the, uh, what those movies ties- are. Those effectively what those movies are. I mean, it's just it's just there to like do a magic trick. Yeah, a sleight of hand with with you know visual choreography or special effects to scare to startle you to get a little fright out of you, and then they move on. It's a it's a street parlor trick. To the uh, to tie some things together, I want to give a, a horror, maybe two horror movie recommendations. But there's one I briefly want to mention because I don't know if it was because I've been reading a bunch of Legati and I rewatched this film, but it also ties ties back to Dune too because uh, stars uh, Max von Sydow, who was of the original kinds. Uh, but I know Titus likes this film, but I I want to recommend for people uh, the hour. Of the wolf. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, that's a deep cut. That that movie is it is absolutely fantastic uh, horror film. Uh, uh, as far as like horror on a a higher higher tier higher level horror, uh, that's one of the best examples I could possibly give. And the other one, I, I do watch a lot of uh, stuff from the Orient, and I do that just because I, I, I can't stand you know, Hollywood at all. So I either watch like old Euro art house flicks or- well, I, I, I was uh, making a comment on a, this related to what is the appeal of the Eastern cultures. And I think it is one of the few domains in the world still that has retained some sovereignty from uh, yes. semi- uh, uh, inappropriately named globo homo because it's not completely global uh and i think they have more traditional values and they typically are more you know right-wing slash conservative and so you i mean you talk about you know preference for their own race i mean come on there's no other part of the world that is more proud of their history and people um and dictates their their government's policies around protecting their people more than the East. Uh, so I think that probably explains why you're drawn to it instinctually. Well, and when it comes to horror, there's a particular type of Oriental cruelty that really translates well to, to horror flicks. I mean, there's some really sick shit out there. Yes, there but is. But the, the only, the only, <laughs> one of the only like Asian, uh, horror films I've seen that really uh, I, is on par with good European cinema. Uh, and I, I I may have mentioned this before, last Halloween or something, because I saw I think I saw it maybe for the first time around last year, maybe the year before. Uh, but I strongly recommend the film The Wailing. Yes, which is a South Korean horror film. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. So there's. There's a there's my two horror film recommendations and obviously I recommend Legati too. Uh, if you haven't read Legati, I'd probably recommend starting with Songs of a Dead Dreamer. Yeah, probably a good place to start as far as his stories go. 
Yeah, and start the beginning. It, and uh, yeah, they sell really, it with uh, Grim Scribe. Yeah, and and I, I and I actually I, I one book. They they mentioned this on his Wikipedia, and I and I actually double checked it because the Tales from a Dead Dreamer and Grim Scribe are, um, it's a Penguin uh, edition, um, and he's one of the I think he's one of ten, uh, contemporary authors. Yeah, um, it's very rare. They don't normally put out living writers. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's it's it's it shows. Uh, a, a level and penguin uh you but know maybe there, it's there are, a there are stretch a of, to call a gaudy a living writer yes well he he would hate that uh he hates it uh the idea of that but yeah it, it, it's, it's a testament <laughs> it's a testament to his to his ability he, he really is a, an excellent author i could not recommend him uh more Well, I, I hope this hasn't been uh, malignantly useless and everyone has a happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Remember, go trick-or-treating. Merry Christmas. <laughs> happy Halloween. Oh, be careful, though, about letting your kids take candy from libtards. Yes, and if you see a uh, boomer uh, sliding little bite-sized Milky Ways down a 30-foot PVC pipe uh, <laughs> instead of walking out and being a normal person, uh, you should probably... Don't forget the tricks. I mean, are, yeah. are, are they even going to let kids come up to their door? Are they going to have to, like, proof of vaccination and then, you know, free masks given out? Well, if someone uh, does that, if someone ruins the spirit of Halloween... Uh, there's always the tricks, eggs, the toilet paper. You can find all kinds of things in Minecraft. Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng bewinged, bedight in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes in the form of God on high Mutter and mumble low And hither and thither fly Mere puppets they who come and go At bidding of vast formless things That shift the scenery to and fro Flapping from out their condor wings Invisible sure it shall not be forgot with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not through a circle that ever returneth into the selfsame spot and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot
But see, amid the mimic rout a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes. With mortal pangs the mimes become its food, and seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out! Out are the lights, out all! And over each quivering form, the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy, man, and its hero, the conqueror world.